Support for this podcast comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio and your money every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise is an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab. The show unpacks the stories making news in Washington and how they may affect your finances and investments. Listen today at schwab.com slash Washington Wise. That's schwab.com slash Washington Wise. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, Wise can help you manage your money in different currencies. With Wise, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. Wise lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using Wise worldwide. To learn more about how a Wise account could work for you, download the app or visit wise.com. That's wise, W-I-S-E dot com, wise dot com. Hello and welcome to The Weeds. I'm Ian Milheiser. I'm a senior correspondent at Vox, and this is another episode of The Most Dangerous Branch our series about the Supreme Court. So one of the big lessons we learned during the pandemic is that the government must be able to act decisively in the middle of a crisis. Imagine how much worse COVID would have been if every decision, every lockdown order, every approval of a new treatment or vaccine, every decision about how to distribute vaccines couldn't have happened until Congress weighed in. You know, we'd probably still be waiting for the vaccines to be approved. Now, there's obviously some tension between this need for decisive action and our democratic values. But just imagine how much worse things would have been and how many more people would have died if every single decision had to go through a Congress where everything is filibustered. As it turns out, there's an entire body of law that deals with this tension between decisiveness and democracy. It answers questions like when a public health official can impose a mask mandate and when the state legislature needs to weigh in first. It also answers questions like whether the Biden administration can require workers to become vaccinated. There are also a lot of conservative activists, and many of them sit on the Supreme Court, who want to disable much of the government's ability to respond to crises like COVID or climate change. And I'll note that the court just took a big case, West Virginia v. EPA, which could allow these conservative justices to implement a very restrictive vision. So today's episode is about this inherent tension between a responsive government and a wholly democratic one. And here to discuss it is Nick Bagley. He's a law professor at the University of Michigan, and he's an expert on both health law and on the balance of power between legislatures and government agencies. We talked about how to strike the right balance and about whether these courts are even attempting to do so. These are all very hard questions, and Nick is one of the most thoughtful people I know on these subjects, so I hope you'll enjoy our conversation. And finally, a quick programming note. A little while after we recorded this episode, the Biden administration announced new rules which require many workers to become vaccinated or at least encourage them to do so. We briefly mentioned those rules in the episode, but if you're wondering why there's not a more extended conversation about them, the reason why is because they came out after we recorded. Nick Bagley, welcome to the podcast. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you so much. 
So I want to start by reading a quote. This is actually from a piece that I wrote in uh, March of 2020. Um, This was right before the lockdowns began. And I said that in national security cases, judges often defer to the executive branch when it claims that a particular incursion on civil liberties is necessary to protect the country. And then I spent several sentences explaining why the pandemic is likely to be a crisis similar in magnitude to a war. And then I write, Thus, just as judges tend to defer to the executive on matters of national security, those same judges are likely to defer to public health officials regarding a potential pandemic. So, Nick, how stupid am I? (laughs) You know, I actually think you're not that stupid. If you step back from the crises of the day, all told over the past, you know, 18 months or so, the courts have generally accommodated, pretty aggressive exercises of state police power. And I'm thinking here, you know, most obviously about the lockdown orders, which were remarkable in the sense of the effects that they had on the economy and the effects of of reaching into people's private lives. And the courts effectively said, you know what, this is the executive branch's call. I will say over time, your initial prediction is starting to look a little shakier, which is to say that that but this, as this pandemic has drawn on, the courts have become a little bit more impatient with exercises of emergency or public health authority. Um, and we've seen sort of episodic eruptions of that discomfort. And we are seeing it, especially in the context of some increasing lines of case law around uh, religious accommodation. So it's a bit of a mixed bag, but, but by and large, the judiciary is given the, the executive branch, you know, both state governors and the president a pretty wide berth here. So I think we've seen a shift. I mean, you mentioned that there was a lot of impatience forming around things like lockdown orders. Yep. And we fortunately left the lockdown order phase of the pandemic and have entered the what do we do about vaccines era of the pandemic. Yeah. And so I think, you know, the most immediate question a lot of people's minds is what about mandates? Can the government legally order someone to get a vaccine that they don't want to get? So the best authority we have for this, for the proposition that the state absolutely has the authority to require vaccination comes from the early part of the 20th century. And a pastor by the name of Jacobson up in Cambridge, Massachusetts, who didn't want to actually take a smallpox vaccine at the time, a less virulent strand of, of smallpox was circulating around the country. School children, for the first time, were being required to get vaccinated in order to attend school. And the city of Cambridge saw a couple of cases and said, everybody in town has got to get vaccinated. And the pastor resisted and was prosecuted for it. The case went all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. Those kinds of mandates were actually pretty uncommon. What was very common is requiring school children to get vaccinated before going to school. In a case that was really designed to get at that issue, the Supreme Court said, look, this is a a valid exercise of the police power, and the community's health has to take precedence. They invoked a, an, a hoary principle of law known as salus populus suprema laxesto, which just means public health is the supreme law. So they said Jacobson, yeah, can be required to get vaccinated. That's the closest analogy we have in the case law, in part because vaccine mandates are fairly rare. We have lots of vaccines that are conditions on certain activities like going to school or attending a university, but there are relatively few that are just freestanding mandates. So there's not been a lot of legal development on that question, not until now. Are they really conditional? I I mean, like, 
you know, most states, for example, have truancy laws. I mean, there, there are, I guess, a mm-hmm. few parents who homeschool, but like that's not an option for most parents. And so, you know, for most people, going to school is mandatory and you can't go to school unless you're vaccinated. So, like, I, I guess, like, shouldn't we think of that as a true mandate and not a conditional one? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the line, in, in a sense, you know, nothing is mandatory until somebody, you know, puts a gun against you, your head and tells you you have to do it. So the question is the degree of coercion. So when you're talking about something that's required to get your kid into a public school, absolutely, that comes, that, that, that strikes at the very core of, you know, the state coming in and telling you how to order your life. You know, whether you characterize it as a mandate or you characterize it as a voluntary choice backed up by a fair amount of state pressure, I think is is less important than asking are we comfortable allowing a state to exert that kind of pressure or the kind of pressure in question in order to secure compliance with a vaccine requirement? It's relatively straightforward in the context of employment where, you know, across the country we have at-will employment, which is to say that employers can fire you for any reason or no reason at all. It seems, you know, not much of a stretch to say that an employer can choose to adopt a new policy requiring you to get vaccinated on pain of termination. That's going to feel pretty coercive to somebody. But we nonetheless, in the law, treat that as a voluntary condition on your employment. So I guess going back to my wartime analogy from before, like, I mean, I understand why some people recoil at vaccine mandates. Like it is a big ask for the the government to say, like, you have to inject yourself with this serum. But like the draft is also constitutional. I mean, uh, you know, under certain circumstances, the government is allowed to force people to do a lot of things. So like with that in mind, and I guess with, you know, the politics that we've started to see form around anti-vaxism, do you think that Jacobson is in any kind of danger? Do you think that it could be overruled? Do you think that state courts might implement anti-vax rules? Or do you think that this doctrine that the government can require people to be vaccinated is safe? You know, it's very hard to say, in part because we have had so little development of the case law across the 20th century. So we don't have a lot of insight into how judges as a group think about this problem. And there are relatively few, you know, direct analogies. The draft is a close one. But of course, you know, in the draft, the justification for requiring a draft is is in some respect similar to the justification for requiring vaccination, which is that this is a this is necessary for the protection of the broader public. And though it's an incursion on your individual liberties, it's something the state can do. If I had to guess, so far, the courts have been pretty impatient with people who are trying to bring challenges to vaccine mandates, whatever you call them, a vaccine mandate or a vaccine requirement or what you will. So far, the courts have brushed those challenges back. I would expect that to continue if for no other reason than I think the kind of populist surge of energy around the anti-vaxxer movement, I'm not sure is entirely shared by the conservative legal elites who now populate our federal courts. I think there may be a divergence of opinion there between what you might think of as expert and, and sort of lay views on this question. But I'm speculating, and we could see the development of law. You know, I think we're most likely to see it when the vaccination mandates have relatively few exemptions. And I think we're especially likely to see it in cases where there are not religious exemptions. I think the vaccine mandates are are quite vulnerable there to the extent that people who are conservative exploit religious exceptions in order to avoid compliance with a mandate they disagree with on policy grounds, but not on genuine bona fide religious grounds. You could imagine that blowing a pretty big hole in vaccine mandates. So I worry less about a frontal assault on Jacobson, and I worry more about a kind of death by a thousand cuts. 
I mean, the flip side, you know, if Jacobson is itself as settled as you seem to think it is, why do you think policymakers haven't been more aggressive? I mean, you know, I mean, as as far as I know, I don't know of any state that has a statewide vaccination mandate. You know, you're seeing some employer mandates, you're seeing some for specific kinds of workers. But, you know, why hasn't there been, you know, why hasn't, for example, Governor Newsom in California, who just won a big election, said, all right, I've got a mandate. Let's, you know, let, let's put in place a rule that everyone in the state has to be vaccinated. I think it has a lot more to do with politics than constitutional concerns. You know, there's a temptation during a pandemic for every level of government to point the finger at another level of government and try to assign responsibility for the problem elsewhere because making hard decisions is hard and it can be politically costly. I can't speculate about Governor Newsom, but I certainly know here in Michigan, there are a lot of people who are strongly anti-vaxxers. And if they were required to get a vaccine as a condition of, say, state employment, which is the place where the governor has the most straightforward authority, you know, you might fear there would be an exodus of at least some state employees, which could be hard to fill during a uh, time of a uh, tight labor market. More importantly, you know, like there are a lot of people who are going to get animated about this and it feeds into storylines about Democrats overreaching and public health authorities overreaching. You know, it could be the case that the risks are perceived to outweigh the potential benefits. And there's a hope that somebody else will do the hard work, right? So that the private sector will take care of a vaccine mandates by just requiring it to their employees. And the private sector wants cover from the federal government and the federal government wants states to do it, but the states would prefer OSHA to, to issue a rule. So I think that that pointing of fingers makes it difficult for any one political actor to take core responsibility um, when there are risks. One of the stronger arguments I've heard for vaccine mandates is that they give permission to people to do the thing that they already wanted to do anyway. Yes, absolutely. You, you know, so an employer who wants a vaccine mandate can blame it on the government, an individual who like maybe their spouse is very aggressively anti-vax can say, well, look, like. I'm not doing this because I don't love you. I'm doing this because the government is making me. You know, wh what do you make of that argument? Oh, I mean, I think there's a ton of truth to it. I think there are a lot of people, and if you look at the polling data, you know, a, a very large majority of people support vaccination. And a lot of people who are vaccinated themselves are furious at people who refuse to get vaccinated because they are protracting this deadly pandemic and actually threatening the lives of even those people who are vaccinated. We saw that with Colin Powell passing as a result of COVID-19, notwithstanding the fact that he was vaccinated. So it could be that politicians are misreading the room, that they would actually be quite popular if they were to make the hard choice and give some cover to people who are afraid of their employees or afraid of their customers, but who would like a little bit of, of room. You know, we've seen this at different stages of the pandemic. When I worked for Governor Whitmer as special counsel on COVID matters, there was a lot of debate around mask mandates. And one of the arguments we heard is you know, requiring masks at businesses was something that a lot of business owners would have liked to have done to protect their employees, but they were afraid of taking responsibility for that. They wanted the cover. And, you know, the governor was willing to be, you know, to that extent, the bad guy, to be the adult in the room, to say, we're going to get behind this and, and require it of people. So far, we haven't seen that appetite yet with vaccine mandates, although we have seen it in some school districts. We've seen it at some universities. We've seen it, at least in theory, from potentially OSHA. I think that'll be the biggest move in this space when and if we ever actually get a rule requiring vaccination for employers over, say, 100 people. 
So one thing that surprised me earlier in the pandemic is that there were a lot of states that had capacity limits on various businesses and institutions. You know, only so many people in a grocery store, only so many people in a movie theater, only so many people in a church. And that last part, the limits on houses of worship became a very big deal. And we had two big court decisions saying that there were very strict limits on the government's ability to impose those sorts of requirements on religious institutions. So why do you think that the court you know, placed such a heavy emphasis on religious liberty, even when the countervailing interest was, hey, we're, we're trying to stop the spread of a deadly pandemic here? I think the Supreme Court majority is very nervous about the way that they feel that secular authorities are disrespecting the role of religion in, in our lives and that are, are being insensitive to the interests of people with firmly held religious beliefs. And I think some of this relates to a, you know the broader rhetoric you hear in the public about you know, a war on religion or a war on Christianity. And I think some of the concerns are overwrought. I think some of them are quite misplaced. Nonetheless, I think it is true that some of the rules adopted in California and in New York in particular, which were the focus of the Supreme Court decisions, were not always as sensitive to religious observance as they were to other economic interests. And that rankled some of the justices. That made them think something here, something is, a, a, something is afoot here, some, some religious discrimination. The people are out to get people who are religiously observant. Um, and I think, you know, put more charitably, I think there was some at times, inattention to questions of religious observance, and then also some genuine concern about religious observance, because some of the super spreader events that we saw, especially early in the pandemic, were associated with religious worship and were associated with particular religious communities, including the Orthodox in New York. So there were a lot of cross-cutting concerns here, and the justices, I think, were not willing to say the states can't regulate in the exercise of their police powers, but they were willing to say we think that you've gone too far when it comes to religious exercise. Um, that's a domain they feel very strongly about, and they've pushed the law quite dramatically in that space, even as they've left the states with their general authorities to take what steps take steps necessary to to protect the public health. So the other thing that surprised me in the court's religion cases is while these two cases involving houses of worship and occupancy capacity were making their way through the courts, there was another huge case. It was called Fulton. And Fulton, the specific issue there, it was the latest case dealing with whether or not people with religious objections to anti-LGBT discrimination laws can get exemptions from those laws. I mean, they, they ruled in favor of the party that was seeking an exemption, but on the narrowest possible grounds. And I guess what I'm asking here is, you know, I don't want to denigrate the importance of anti-discrimination laws. I mean, they're, they're tremendously important, but they already said that religious liberty concerns can override the government's interest in the preservation of human life. And like once you've gone that far in the cases dealing with church capacity, houses of worship capacity, why then turn around and be so timid in a case that deals with literally any other right? I struggle with this question. I think it must say something about the way that the current Supreme Court majority thinks discrimination operates in the 21st century in the United States. 
This is a picture I don't hold. It's a picture that I think is it would be very strange to a lot of people, but I think they really believe that people who are religious are in some respects persecuted, certainly treated with insensitivity, and that the courts really need to be vigilant to prevent the kind of blunderbuss infringement of religious exercise rights. Now, none of that, I think, is, is on its own terribly objectionable. Um, I think what's hard is that there are all sorts of other forms of inequality in our country where you, you see the court not being especially attentive to. So why is religious discrimination the thing that you are vigilant to hunt out when racial discrimination is something that's clearly not a priority or sex discrimination is not as urgent a priority or where you are not worried about devaluing the choices that women make in connection with their reproductive health. And, you know, like all these questions about other kinds of insensitivity in our political culture don't seem to register, but this one does. And I think the answer there just might be, that's the worldview they were selected for. That's the worldview of the folk who nominated them to the Supreme Court. And it's a function of winning elections where a lot of people who voted for the, the presidents that installed them hold these views or versions of these views. So it's time for us to take our first break. Um, when we come back, we're going to talk about a different aspect of the justice worldview, how they would structure the government that's supposed to be able to respond to crises like a pandemic. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then WISE might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let WISE help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E.com, WISE.com. Welcome back. I'm here with Nick Bagley. We're talking about the courts and the pandemic and the difficult legal questions that arise out of that. 
So another big pandemic-related case um, that made its way up to the Supreme Court, Alabama Association of Realtors v. HHS. This was the eviction moratorium case. So you've argued that the courts got this one right, which I think is an unpopular view in liberal circles, but also, you know, a very plausible one given the legal rules that apply here. So explain briefly what this case is about and, you know, why you think the courts did get it right. Very early on, a lot of states moved to limit evictions in the pandemic. And the fear was that people who were infected with COVID-19 would get pitched out under the street, go to homeless shelters, infect others, and kick up the spread of COVID-19. The federal government, under President Trump, actually, got in on the game after many states started to lift their eviction moratoria and exercise powers, um, the CDC's authorities, to control uh, the spread of infectious disease to readopt a, a nationwide eviction moratorium. And the moratorium itself was actually more porous than people fully appreciate. It was much harder for renters to take advantage of than I think was widely understood. Nonetheless, Congress then extended the eviction moratorium and President Biden, as the moratorium was set to lapse, decided to extend it yet again. The reason that this is a, a challenge for those of us who are kind of deep in the public health world is that the states really have kind of chief authority when it comes to regulating questions pertaining to kind of the direct control of individuals and the public health. So this isn't a question about like drug approval or vaccine approval. It's not a question about letting people in from other countries. It's not a question about interstate travel. It's just a question about renters and about whether they should be able to be evicted during the pandemic. That's kind of a core question of state law, not a question of federal law, at least usually. And the authorities that the CDC were drawing on were drafted back in the 1940s at a time when the federal presence in public health was even less pronounced than it is today. And so to construe a statute that's 80 years old to confer on the CDC the sweeping authority to reshape landlord-tenant law in the states struck me as, as quite a stretch. And in fact, the statutory text, there are some clues that that's not what Congress had in mind. So when the cases were filed, I thought, I thought the challengers had a very good likelihood of winning. Uh, I wrote as much publicly. It was not popular. Uh, and then the case got in front of the Supreme Court, and they said what I thought they would say from the beginning. You know, I, I fault the Biden administration a little bit on this one. You know, they understood the legal risks. They understood the legal writing was probably on the wall. They went ahead anyway, and I think they have, they did so, you know, in a way that's generated a bad precedent for the CDC going forward that could end up circumscribing public health authority going forward. And with the lapsing of the eviction moratorium, I think, again, because I think it was so porous and so poorly enforced, um, we didn't actually see an immediate surge in evictions. And I think that was never especially likely. So, you know, I, I think this was an unforced error on the part of the Biden administration, an effort to curry favor with groups that were, for understandable reasons, completely angry about the possibility of people being evicted during the pandemic. But uh, I think the Supreme Court probably got this one right. So I want to ask about the timing of the court's decision. So like there was a period in the Trump administration where Congress had not authorized an eviction moratorium. And in the Trump administration, the CDC was exercising its authority that was later struck down. And the cynical take on that is Republicans control the Supreme Court. They let this thing survive while Trump was president and then they killed it. But like the, you know, more charitable take on it is that when Trump was president, there wasn't a vaccine. 
And so if the policy argument for this moratorium was we don't want people going to homeless shelters or going to other places where they might spread covid, that argument became much, much weaker by the time the vaccine mandate was actually struck down. So or not the vaccine mandate, I'm sorry, by the time the eviction moratorium was struck down. So which explanations you buy or is there a third explanation for why the court acted? Yeah, I lean toward a third explanation, which is simpler and and in some respects just much more boring, which is that litigation takes time and that the eviction cases had not either been filed or were at early stages during the Trump administration. And then again, at one point during that, that run, Congress approved its own version of the eviction moratorium, placing it on a firm legal foundation. Um, so it wasn't until the the thing was reauthorized under Biden that the cases became sort of urgent and were brought up fairly quickly. So I think partly it's a matter of time, partly it's a matter of cutting the executive branch some slack when matters are, are tough. And this relates to your point about the availability of the vaccine, which is maybe this is skirting up against legal boundaries, but during a crisis, we're going to cut you some slack. And I think you saw some of that. You know, I taught a class on the law of contagious disease to my students this past term. And one of the things that you, you notice if you look back at, say, the 1918 flu to which the COVID crisis is often compared, there's not much case law that came out of the 1918 experience, notwithstanding there being fairly sweeping stay-at-home orders that presaged what we saw during COVID-19. And the reason is that the stay-at-home order here in Michigan, for example, was on the books for three whole weeks. That's it. When something lasts for a short time, it often is not going to get up to the Supreme Court quickly enough to to make a difference. And I think partly that's the court saying, we're going to give us a little breathing room. And that's what you saw here. It took a bunch of months for the big challenges to the stay-at-home orders to get to get mounted, and it took a while for the challenges to the eviction moratorium to get up to speed, too. One thing that troubled me about, I mean, not just the eviction moratorium case, this is a problem that I think comes up over and over again now, is that especially with the filibuster, Congress can't do anything on the regulatory side. Like the reason why President Biden's entire legislative agenda is taxing and spending is because the way that the Senate rules work is you can pass a spending bill with 51 votes, but you need 60 votes to do anything like ordering a business to do something. And I guess what my concern is, is that someone needs to be able to govern. And so I think what you see is a lot of administrative agencies, this happened in the Obama administration as well, taking steps that are not on the surest legal footing. I mean, not not things that are blatantly illegal, but things that there are very strong legal arguments against because if the administration doesn't act, no one will step in. And often there's a legitimate emergency. So how should the courts and the government navigate essentially this problem created by a completely dysfunctional Congress? Uh, you're asking one of the, the questions that genuinely keeps me up at night. I think the narrative we tell about presidential lawbreaking often feeds into our political preconceptions. So if you're a conservative, you thought Obama was arrogant and, you know, just just wanted to do it his own way and if you are a Democrat, you looked at Trump and his lawbreaking and thought that just reflected his temperament and kind of fuck all y'all approach to lots of parts of his job. I think the truth is actually much more concerning, which is that in the absence of a functional Congress, there's immense pressure on the president to achieve his or her political objectives 
by drawing on existing executive authority. And that means they're going to push up against and in many cases, exceed the boundaries of their power. So you saw this with Obama uh, in connection with lots of parts of the implementation of the Affordable Care Act. You saw it with his extension of DACA and DAPA, both of which are, are legally contentious. Um, and you saw it with Trump with his efforts to redirect funding for the border wall and for a lot of his other kind of a most aggressive actions. So, you know, kind of put all that together. And I think what we're seeing is an incipient trend where President Biden came under a great deal of pressure from constituents with genuine concerns during a pandemic about people being evicted. And he said, we got to find a way to fix this. And I'm sure that lawyers within the administration said, you know, boss, th this is going to go poorly for us. And I think the answer is, you know, you got to run some risks. And I think that what that means in practice is the executive branch is going to be pushing against boundaries and the courts are going to be increasingly in a position where they feel like they've got to push back. And, you know, obviously they're going to push back this court, the Supreme Court, going to push back with a special force on Democrats. I wanted to dive into the partisan implications of this dynamic as well, because like during the latter part of the Trump administration, you know, during the pandemic part of the Trump administration, a lot of big bills passed Congress and a lot of big bills that had regulatory components passed Congress. I mean, you know, Congress passed two temporary eviction moratoriums under Donald Trump. And the reason for that was that Democrats in Congress were willing, you know, they, they thought it was important to pass these bills and they cared more about passing those bills than they cared about making Donald Trump look bad. And then Biden came into office. And I think it immediately became clear that Mitch McConnell was not going to provide him with the same kind of cooperation that Nancy Pelosi did. So if I'm a voter who's just casually watching this, what I see is that when there's a Republican president, the government seems to be working just fine. And like people seem to be getting along and passing important bills. And when there's a Democratic president, all of a sudden the government can't legislate. And so I, I guess what I'm asking is like, is there a way out of this trap where the party that seems more willing to engage in bipartisan deal making winds up being tarred as the party of bad governance because it can't get reciprocity. I worry a lot about this. I want to offer a suggestion, which I think is that the way to bring Republicans to the negotiating table is to beat them in elections. I think this sometimes gets missed. We try to think about roundabout, like structural changes or fixes, and certainly we can make some progress on some of the issues. Getting rid of the filibuster would go a long way to easing some of the gridlock. But there still only are 50 Democratic votes in the Senate. And that means that Joe Manchin still has the sort of balance of power there. And there's no amount of wishing or hoping that will make that change. So unless and until Democrats can figure out how to win elections consistently in a, in a genuinely... Um, imbalanced environment where they have some geographical disadvantages, where they've got a structural disadvantage in the Senate uh, and in the Electoral College. It's, it's not a favorable terrain, but I think Democrats can win elections. I think they're going to have to do that. And I think they're going to have to do it in a way that decisively rejects the kind of scorched earth politics that we've become accustomed to. Because if you think about it, you know, from Mitch McConnell's perspective, this works, right? The Republicans aren't blamed for the kind of sclerosis that now American public seems to think is just typical of government. I would hope that coming out of the COVID pandemic, there would be a renewed appreciation for the things that we need government to do for us. And in fact, 
an appreciation for the things that the government did well during the pandemic. And the, the, the list may be short, but it's real. And I'm thinking here especially about Operation Warp Speed and getting vaccines rolled out as quickly and decisively as they were. Um, that was a, an effort that was not just the private sector, it was the private sector supported by public money. So there are things that we can do. But at the end of the day, there's no substitute for persuading people. And so far, Democrats have, have not been able to do that. I don't want to let them off the hook here. I think they haven't won because sometimes I think their ideas are not resonating with people. And we got to figure out how to, how, to, how, to, how to reach people. So let's take a step back because, like, I think a lot of people, I mean, you and I, I think we're the same age, grew up on the schoolhouse rock version of government. You know, Congress passes a bill. It is signed by the president. That is how laws are made. And, you know, in reality, often the way that it works is Congress passes a law which tells an agency to come up with a bunch of rules that are also legally binding. And so it, just explain to me how that process works and like why that is an important part of modern governance. Congress doesn't have the institutional capacity or the expertise to craft all the, the kind of specific and detailed rules we need to run our economy. I mean, there's, there's just no question about that. And so when it wants to regulate air quality, it will often say to EPA, hey, we'd like you to regulate um, some air pollutants. Here are some you know, general constraints about how you go about that. But, but if you could determine exactly how stringent these rules ought to be taking into account concerns about public health and economic considerations, we'll have you do that work and we will sit back and let you do that work. And, and whatever you say will bind polluters across the country. That kind of delegation replicates itself thousands, tens of thousands of times across the federal government. And so agencies every day wield delegated authority to do the jobs that we we and we ask them to do, right? Like and, and there's no way that it could work any differently. Could could you elaborate on that point? Like why is it that there are certain kinds of governance that can only be done by an agency and couldn't be done by the legislature? So there are a couple of reasons that Congress would have a tough time doing this. One reason is that, that at least as matters stand, and I suppose you could come up with structural changes that would mitigate this somewhat, they just don't have the staff. I mean, Congress is actually fairly thinly staffed. There aren't enough people with the requisite expertise up on the Hill to make these kind of judgment calls. So you're going to need to enlist outside help. The second reason is, is that, to be honest, we don't want politicians making all of these decisions. And you've seen, you know, just in the last week with all the infighting over the Build Back Better bill, how many how many kind of deals are made in order to get to yes on a piece of legislation in a way that actually moves you some distance from what you might think of as an ideal picture. And, and you can't take politics out of decision making. EPA is going to have to, you know, invoke political considerations to figure out how to balance economic concerns against the human toll of pollution, right? Like politics is ever present, but you can take steps to mitigate that. And a lot of these delegations reflect an effort to get the kind of cut and thrust of partisan politics out of the immediate decision-making on the ground. So the idea here is that like, if the FDA is deciding whether to approve a drug, you want that decision to be made by scientists who know something about whether that drug works and not on the basis of say, well, we need Kirsten Cinema's vote for the child care legislation and the manufacturer of this drug is based in Arizona. So let's do her a solid. That's a really nice and concrete example, right? And it's a way to, to shield some of the really important decisions that we care about from that kind of day-to-day -day partisan infighting. What I will say too is that Congress is pretty good at creating general rules. Like, hey, we'd like you to approve drugs that are safe and effective based on scientific evidence and research. 
Congress is pretty bad at that retail-level decision. We've got to have agencies to help us out with that. So the argument against this point, and I mean, this is the argument I hear from people like Justice Gorsuch all the time, is, is some version of, well, but we're supposed to be a democracy. And, you know, why should these policies, often very important policies, I mean, Obama's most aggressive efforts to fight climate change was done through EPA regulations. You know, why should these decisions be made by unelected bureaucrats and not by the people who have actually been elected to make these kinds of decisions? Well, I mean, I will set aside the cheap but nonetheless real point that Justice Gorsuch is also an unelected bureaucrat. So, you know, it's a little rich to hear him lecturing us about the extent to which other unelected bureaucrats shouldn't make important decisions about the lives of people on the ground. But setting again that aside, the fact is I've never really understood this objection because, of course, the laws that we adopt to empower agencies to act are themselves the product of democratic deliberation. They're, They're laws. They've been voted on by both houses of Congress and signed into law by the president. And when Congress and its its judgment decides that a question is best resolved not by the political, not by the, the the Congress itself, but by experts who've given it a lot of thought. I don't know why that's any less a democratic choice than having Congress try to slog through their process and work it through, right? Like the choice to delegate is itself a choice, just in the same way that when you make a choice in your daily life to delegate part of your responsibilities, you've made a choice, right? Like it's Not that you're any less responsible for the outcome. You've just made a choice about how you're going to structure your affairs. So the democratic argument has never moved me. The argument that I think has more force is, look, and this relates to an earlier point, is in a world where Congress is dysfunctional, there will be a temptation to brush up against and perhaps exceed legal constraints. And where you see the executive branch freelancing, where there isn't strong statutory authority, that's when you might be genuinely more worried. And, you know, sometimes sometimes those aggressive measures are exactly what's warranted, and sometimes that's permitted under the statute, and, you know, that's just the breaks. But sometimes you do want to ask hard questions about whether or not the agencies are getting out over their skis. And I think we're going to see those questions recur with alarming frequency over the next few years. So let's take our second break now. And when we come back, we're going to dig in on what the conservative justices may approach federal agencies and how they might restrict them. Welcome back. I'm Ian Milheiser. I'm here with Nick Bagley. We're talking about the Supreme Court, the pandemic. And now we're going to talk about some of the questions about the structure of our government and whether we have an adequately structured government to deal with emergencies. So before I get into the details of the criticisms that people like Gorsuch have raised against federal agencies and how they might try to rein them in, I just want to get into some of the political history here. I mean, I I have covered the Federalist Society for maybe about 10 years now. And especially, you know, beginning at the end of the Obama administration, there is an obsession when I cover their events with limiting the power of federal agencies. This is a really new development. You know, you know, in the, in the 1980s, one of the most outspoken proponents of expansive power for federal agencies and expansive judicial discretion to federal agencies was Justice Scalia, the, the conservative icon. So I, I guess my question is, like, is there a non-cynical explanation for this shift? Like, is it just that when Scalia was saying these things in the 80s, Ronald Reagan was president and now Joe Biden is president? 
Or is there a principled reason why you think conservatives have suddenly become very skeptical of agency discretion? Well, cynical is maybe maybe a little strong. If you are a conservative with a libertarian bent, you're looking around and trying to figure out what you can do to reduce the role of government in your life. And in the 1980s, the problem was that we had a lot of rules on the books and a lot of regulatory structures on the books that, in the view of conservatives, needed to be swept away. And in order to do that, they wanted to draw on the power that agencies have to change up their rules and to change how they approach big social problems. So if that's what you want, is agencies to actually get rid of a, kind of the encrusted detritus of four decades of rulemaking, well, then you want to empower them to act. And if you happen to be in charge of the executive branch, that's a happy coincidence that you can take advantage of that. Over time, I think that the kind of libertarian right has woken up to the reality that empowering government agencies to act is probably not consistent with their long-term strategic goal of getting agencies out of their lives. So there are ways to understand that shift as being somewhat continuous, but I think you're right, just dead right, to notice the way that the conservative legal movement has put reigning in the administrative state at the center of their of their agenda. And they're not they're not subtle about this, and they're quite quite clear. And Justice Gorsuch and Justice Kavanaugh were both in particular selected for the Supreme Court because of their ardent anti-administrative views. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing that strikes me about this is how much of our policy is being done through structural changes to our constitutional system. So, you know, like the, the, the question of who has the power to issue binding regulations? Can it only come from Congress? Can it come from Congress and a federal agency? You know, what to what extent can Congress give a federal agency? I mean, these are massive constitutional decisions. And I don't necessarily know what the right balance is there. But it seems to me that whatever the balances that exist when, say, Barack Obama is president, should also be the balance that exists when, say, Ronald Reagan is president. I think in the abstract, of course, Justice Gorsuch and the rest of the right wing of the court would agree with you. Um, but when you're thinking about some of the doctrines that they hope to revive, let's take the non-delegation doctrine, right? It stands for the principle that some laws are too vague and ambiguous. You can't delegate authority of that breadth without laying down clear rules about how you want the agency to exercise them. Now, the non-delegation doctrine has basically been a moribund doctrine throughout American history. It had one good year back in 1935 at the height of the New Deal when the Supreme Court said, whoa, that statute seems to go extremely far because it would have allowed the president to effectively cartelize the entire uh, American economy. But apart from statutes that, that kind of push that far, the doctrine hasn't done much work. And Congress has, by and large, been able to delegate whenever it sees fit. Justice Gorsuch doesn't like that state of affairs. He wants to say that Congress, when it delegates certain kinds of authority to adopt rules governing private conduct, has got to provide enough guidance to make him comfortable. But the thing is, that kind of spongy, oh, it's got to be a little more specific doctrine is going to be applied with special force to statutes that give you the willies, right? And the statutes that give him the willies are likely not to be the statutes that give Democrats in Congress the willies. And that means that he will be exercising the fairly open-ended authority to pick and choose those statutes that, in his view, go too far. And that's going to be true of the conservative justices as well. Uh, we saw that play out actually here in my home state of Michigan. So there was a, a law that had been in the book since 1945 empowering Governor Whitmer 
to adopt an emergency response to things like disease. And the Michigan Supreme Court, by a four to three vote falling along predictable partisan lines, said that that 1945 statute, been on the books for almost 80 years, was unconstitutional. It didn't provide enough guidance about how to respond to emergencies, even though, of course, the whole nature of emergencies is that you don't know how you're going to need to respond. So you need to be able to draw on broad authority. That kind of, frankly, opportunistic decision, I think, is likely to be more common if we breathe life into the non-delegation doctrine. Yeah, no. And just to like put an exclamation point about what you just said about statutes that give justices the willies, I'm going to read a quote from Justice Gorsuch. This is from his opinion in the Gundy case. And this was technically a dissenting opinion, but five justices have since said that they really like his opinion in Gundy. So it's probably a majority in waiting. He said that federal laws permitting agencies to regulate must be, quote, sufficiently definite and precise to enable Congress, the courts and the public to ascertain whether Congress's guidance has been followed. I mean, I think I'm a pretty good lawyer and I have no idea what that means in practice. I mean, is he just giving himself a veto power over regs or is there any kind of intelligible principle that can be found in that standard? It's very hard to see one. And and in fact, the person who articulated this position most forcefully, the position that this is simply too open-ended a power to give to judges, was Justice Scalia himself, who had flirted earlier in his career with the idea of of bringing back the non-delegation doctrine. But when he was actually a justice, said, look, we don't have any guideposts to help us do this job asking whether it's a little bit too vague or a little bit too amorphous or whether the principles laid out are, are precise enough. That's the kind of decision that we're going to have to leave to the Congress because we can't, we don't know how to make that call. And if we try to make that call, we're going to look like partisan hacks because we're going to be calling winners and losers. And and it's going to invite us to substitute our own preferences about the way the world ought to work for those of our elected representatives. And that's no way to run a country. So the rhetoric that I often seem emerging from judges who are fond of non-delegation and other restrictions on administrative law resembles the sort of rhetoric that I think is more appropriate if you're talking about, say, Mao Zedong. <laughs> I mean, it, it, you know, it just, so like, I mean, just give a few examples. A, a judge in Michigan compared the state's lockdown orders to totalitarianism. When uh, the Wisconsin Supreme Court struck down that state stay-at-home order, um, one of the justices wrote an opinion comparing the order to Korematsu, the case saying that Japanese Americans could be rounded up and put in concentration camps. I guess what my concern is, is like, this isn't just rhetorical extravagance. Suppose there's another pandemic. Suppose there's another emergency that requires the sort of swift action that can only come from federal agencies. How are we going to be able to respond to the next pandemic if we have a legal culture that is so concerned about agencies that can act quickly actually acting quickly? I have a lot of concerns along this dimension, but it's not just about emergencies. I think what you see in the increasingly bombastic rhetoric from judges around the country is a mainlining of the kind of institutional distrust that is certainly the cornerstone of a lot of kind of right-wing libertarian thinking, but is but is actually kind of permeating American culture more broadly, right? A lack of faith in institutions, a lack of faith in in basic functions of governance. And that kind of rhetoric 
And that kind of approach to judging is going to be corrosive of state capacity to do almost anything, right? So one challenge that we've got coming up is we've got to husband this transition to clean energy. Well, it's going to require us to build solar plants, the solar fields. It's going to require us to build wind turbines. It's going to require us to build new nuclear sites. Like, I don't see how we negotiate all the judicial obstacles that we've thrown up to development in this country. I don't see how we get the kind of public trust that we can cut through all the the constraints on that kind of activity that we really desperately need. That's not even sort of a, a quick acting emergency. That's a slow burn emergency. And I still I still worry about it. Um, when it comes to an actual on the ground earth shattering emergency like COVID-19, you know, I don't know. I'd like to think that a lot of the bombast has arisen and emerged as the threat has passed. That some of this is just the posturing of folk who are trying to signal something about their unhappiness about how this all went or trying to position themselves for future political gain. And that when push comes to shove, they will hopefully, you know, join together like we did in the very first months of the pandemic and find a way to, to make some tough choices, but to do them anyway. The thing that worries me most about this campaign of delegitimization is that we will no longer have a government that can live up to our aspirations. And what's going to happen is you're going to see another presidential candidate stride across the stage saying, only I can sweep away the pesky constraints that have been placed that make it impossible for government to help achieve your aspirations, that help you achieve your collective goals. I can do it. And it's a strong man you're going to elect. And we've seen that in Donald Trump once. And I think we could see it again. Like government has to be responsive or we will see something much worse, some genuine totalitarianism emerge here in the United States. All right. Well, Nick Bagley, thank you so much for joining me. This has been great. Thank you so much. So that's all for today. Thanks to Nick Bagley for joining me. Thank you for listening. This is the last episode of The Most Dangerous Branch for now. But with the court being, well, the court being how it is, we'll likely be back in your feed fairly soon. Our producer is Sophie Lalonde. Libby Nelson is our editorial advisor. Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director for Talk Podcasts. I'm your host, Ian Milheiser, and if you want more weeds, sign up for the Weeds newsletter at vox.com slash weedsletter. The Weeds is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network.